0: Literary Taste and How to Form It. With detailed instructions for collecting a complete library of English literature by Arnold Bennett, first published in 1909. Chapter 1 The Aim. At the beginning, a misconception must be removed from the path. Many people, if not most, look on literary taste as an elegant accomplishment by acquiring which they will be complete themselves and make themselves finally fit as members of a correct society. They are secretly ashamed of their ignorance of literature in the same way as they would be ashamed of their ignorance of etiquette at a high entertainment, or if their inability to ride a horse if suddenly called upon to do so. There are certain things that a man ought to know, or to know about, and literature is one of them. They have learned to dress themselves with propriety and behave with propriety on all occasions. They are fairly up in the questions of the day. By industry and enterprise, they are succeeding in their vocations. It behooves them, then, not to forget that an acquaintance with literature is an indispensable part of self-respecting man's personal baggage. Painting doesn't matter. Music doesn't matter very much everyone is supposed to know about literature. Then literature is such a charming distraction. Literary taste thus serves two purposes, as a certificate of correct culture and as a private pastime. The young professor of mathematics, immense at mathematics and games, dangerous at chess, capable of Haydn on the violin, once said to me after listening to some chat on books, yes, I must take up literature, as though saying, I was rather forgetting literature, however i polished off all these other things, I'll have a shy at literature now. This attitude, or any attitude which resembles it, is wrong. To him who really comprehends what literature is, and what the function of literature is, this attitude is simply ludicrous. It is also fatal to the formulation of literary taste. People who regard literary taste simply as accomplishment and literature simply as distraction will never truly succeed either in acquiring the accomplishment or in using it half-acquired as a distraction. Though the one is the most perfect of distractions and the other is unsurpassed by any other accomplishment in elegance or in power to impress the universal snobbery of civilized mankind, literature, instead of being an accessory, is the fundamental sin qua non of complete living. I am extremely anxious to avoid rhetorical exaggerations. I do not think I am guilty of one in asserting that he who has not been presented to the freedom of literature has not wakened up out of his prenatal sleep. He is merely not born. He can't see, he can't hear, he can't feel in any full sense. He can only eat his dinner What more than anything else annoys people who know the true function of literature and have profited thereby is the spectacle of so many thousands of individuals going about under the delusion that they are alive, when in fact, they are no nearer being alive than a bear in winter. I will tell you what literature is. No. No. I only wish I could. But I can't. No one can. Gleams can be thrown on the secret, inklings even, but no more. I will try to give you an inkling. And to do so, I will take you back into your own history or forward into it. That evening, when you went for a walk with your faithful friend, the friend from whom you hid nothing, or almost nothing, you were in truth somewhat inclined to hide from him the particular matter which monopolized your mind that evening. But somehow you contrived to get on to it, drawn by an overpowering fascination. And as your faithful friend was sympathetic and discreet and flattered you with a respectful curiosity, you proceeded further and further into the said matter, growing more and more confidential until at last you cried out in a terrific whisper, My boy, she is simply miraculous. At that moment, you were in the domain of literature. Let me explain. Let me explain. Of course, in the ordinary acceptation of the word, she was not miraculous. Your faithful friend had never noticed that she was miraculous, nor had about 40,000 other fairly keen observers. She was just a girl. Troy had not been burnt for her. A girl cannot be called a miracle. If a girl is to be called a miracle, then you might call pretty nearly anything a miracle. That is just it. You might. You can. You ought. Amid all the miracles of the universe, you had just wakened up to one. You were full of your discovery. You were under a divine impulsion to impart that discovery. You had a strong sense of the marvelous beauty of something and you had to share it. You were in a passion about something and you had to vent yourself on somebody. You were drawn towards the whole of the rest of the human race. Mark the effect of your mood and utterance on your faithful friend. He knew that she was not a miracle. No other person could have made him believe that she was a miracle, but you by the force and sincerity of your own vision of her and by the fervor of your desire to make him participate in your vision did for quite a long time cause him to feel that he had been blind to the miracle of that girl you were producing literature you were alive Your eyes were unlidded. Your ears were unstopped. To some part of the beauty and the strangeness of the world and a strong instinct within you forced you to tell someone. It was not enough for you that you saw and heard. Others had to see and hear. Others had to be wakened up. And they were... It is quite possible, I am not quite sure, that your faithful friend the very next day or the next month looked at some other girl and suddenly saw that she too was miraculous, the influence of literature. The makers of literature are those who have seen and felt the miraculous interestingness of the universe And the greatest makers of literature are those whose vision has been the widest and whose feeling has been the most intense. Your own fragment of insight was accidental and perhaps temporary. Their lives are one long ecstasy of denying that the world is a dull place. It is nothing to you to learn to understand that the world is not a dull place. It is nothing to you to be led out of the tunnel, onto the hillside, to have all of your senses quickened, to be invigorated by the true savor of life, to feel your heart beating under that correct necktie of yours. These makers of literature render you their equals. The aim of literary study is not to amuse the hours of leisure, it is to awake oneself. It is to be alive, to intensify one's capacity for pleasure, for sympathy, and for comprehension. It is not to affect one hour, but 24 hours. It is to change utterly one's relation to the world. An understanding appreciation of literature means an understanding appreciation of the world, and it means nothing else. Not isolated and unconnected parts of life but all of life brought together and correlated in a synthetic map. The spirit of literature is unifying. It joins the candle and the star, and by the magic of an image shows the beauty of the greater is in the less, and not content with the disclosure of beauty and the bringing together of all things whatever within its focus it enforces a moral wisdom by the tracing everywhere of cause and effect. It consoles doubly by the revelation of unsuspected loveliness and by the proof that our lot is the common lot. It is the supreme cry of the discoverer, offering sympathy and asking for it in a single gesture. An attending university extension lecture on the sources of Shakespeare's plots or in studying the researches of George Saintsbury into the origins of English prosody, or in weighing the evidence for and against the assertion that Rousseau was a scoundrel, one is apt to forget what literature really is and is for. It is well to remind ourselves that literature is first and last a means of life, and that the enterprise of forming one's literary taste is an enterprise of learning how best to use the means of life. People who don't want to live, people who would sooner hibernate than feel intensely, will be wise to eschew literature. They had better to quote from the finest passage in a fine poem, sit around and eat blackberries. The sight of a common bush afire with God might upset their nerves. Chapter Two, Your Particular Case. The attitude of the average decent person towards the classics of his own tongue is one of distrust. I had almost said of fear. I will not take the case of Shakespeare, for Shakespeare is taught in schools. That is to say, the Board of Education and all authorities bind themselves together in a determined effort to make every boy in the land a lifelong enemy of Shakespeare. It is a mercy that they don't teach Blake. I will take, for an example, Sir Thomas Brown as to whom the average person has no offensive juvenile memory. One day he sees the religio medici in a shop window, or rather outside a shop window, for he would hesitate about entering a bookshop, and he buys it by way of a mild experiment. He does not expect to be enchanted by it. A profound instinct tells him that Sir Thomas Brown is not in his line, and in the result he is even less enchanted than he expected to be. He reads the introduction, and he glances at the first page or two of the work. He sees nothing but words. The work makes no appeal to him whatever. He is surrounded by trees and cannot perceive the forest. He puts the book away. If Sir Thomas Brown is mentioned, he will say, yes, very fine, with a feeling of pride that he has, at any rate, bought and inspected Sir Thomas Brown. Deep in his heart is a suspicion that people who get enthusiastic about Sir Thomas Brown are vain and conceited posers. After a year or so, when he has recovered from the discouragement caused by Sir Thomas Brown, he may... If he is young and hopeful, repeat the experiment with Congreve or Addison, same sequel, and so on for perhaps a decade, until his commerce with the classics finally expires. That, and newish fiction apart, is the literary history of the average decent person. And even in your case, though you are genuinely preoccupied with thoughts of literature, bears certain disturbing resemblances to the drab case of the average person. You do not approach the classics with gusto. Anyhow, not with the same gusto as you would approach a new novel by a modern author who has taken your fancy. You never murmured to yourself when reading Gibbon's Decline and Fall in bed, "'Well, I really must read one more chapter before I go to sleep,' Speaking generally, the classics do not afford you a pleasure commiserate with their renown. You peruse them with a sense of duty, a sense of doing the right thing, a sense of improving yourself, rather than with a sense of gladness. You do not smack your lips. You say, that is good for me. You make little plans for reading, and then you invent excuses for breaking the plans something new something which is not a classic will surely draw you away from a classic it is all very well for you to pretend to agree with the verdict of the elect that cassandra harlow is one of the greatest novels in the world a new kipling or even a new number of a magazine will cause you to neglect anything else until i have read richardson or gibbon for an hour each day to neglect clarissa harlow just as though kipling etc could not be kept for a few days without turning sour so that you have to ordain rules for yourself as, I will not read anything else until I have read Richardson or Gibbon for an hour each day. Thus proving that you regard a classic as a pill, the swallowing of which merits jam. And the more modern a classic is, the more it resembles the stuff of the year and the less it resembles the classics of the centuries. The more easy and enticing do you find that classic. Hence, you are glad that George Eliot, the Brontes, Thackeray are considered as classics because you really do enjoy them. Your sentiments concerning them approach your sentiments concerning a rattling good story in a magazine. I may have exaggerated. Or, on the other hand, I may have understated the unsatisfactory characteristics of your particular case, but it is probable that in the mirror I hold up, you recognize the rough outlines of your likeness. You do not care to admit it, but it is so. You are not content with yourself. The desire to be more truly literary persists in you. You feel that there is something wrong in you, but you cannot put your finger on the spot." Further, you feel that you are a bit of a sham. Something within you continually forces you to exhibit for the classics an enthusiasm which you do not sincerely feel. You even try to persuade yourself that you are enjoying a book, when the next moment you drop it in the middle and forget to resume it. You occasionally buy classical works and do not read them at all. You practically decide that it is enough to possess them and that the mere possession of them gives you a cachet. The truth is you are a sham and your soul is a sea of uneasy remorse. You reflect, according to what Matthew Arnold says, I ought to be perfectly mad about Wadsworth's prelude and I am not. Why am I not? have i got to be learned to undertake a vast course of study in order to be perfectly mad about wadsworth's prelude or am i born without the faculty of pure taste in literature despite my vague longings i do wish i could smack my lips over wadsworth's prelude as i did over that splendid story by h g wells the country of the blind in the strand magazine yes I am convinced that in your dissatisfied moments you address yourself in these terms. I am convinced that I have diagnosed your symptoms. Now, the enterprise of forming one's literary taste is an agreeable one. If it is not agreeable, it cannot succeed. But this does not imply that it is an easy or a brief one. The enterprise of beating Colonel Bogey at golf is an agreeable one, but it means honest and regular work, a fact to be borne in mind always. You are certainly not going to realize your ambition, and so great, so influential an ambition, by spasmodic and half-hearted effort. You must begin by making up your mind adequately. You must rise to the height of the affair. You must approach a grand undertaking in the grand manner. You ought to mark the day in the calendar as a solemnity. Human nature is weak and has need of tricky aids, even in the pursuit of happiness. Time will be necessary to you, and time regularly and sacredly set apart. Many people affirm that they cannot be regular and that regularity numbs them. I think this is true of a very few people and that, in the rest, the objection to regularity is merely an attempt to excuse idleness. I'm inclined to think that you personally are capable of regularity, and I am sure that if you constantly devote certain specific hours on certain specific days of the week to this business of forming your literary taste, you will arrive at the goal much sooner. The simple act of resolution will help you. This is the first preliminary. The second preliminary is to surround yourself with books, to create for yourself a bookish atmosphere. The merely physical side of books is important, more important than it may seem to the inexperienced. Theoretically, save for the works of reference, a student has need for but one book at a time. Theoretically, an amateur of literature might develop his taste by expending sixpence a week or a penny a day, and he might store his library in a hat box or a biscuit tin. But in practice, he would have to be a monster of resolution to succeed in such conditions. The eye must be flattered, the hand must be flattered, the sense of owning must be flattered, sacrifices must be made for the acquisition of literature. That which has cost a sacrifice is always endeared. A detailed scheme of buying books will come later. Surround yourself with volumes as handsome as you can afford, and for reading, All that I will now particularly enjoin is a general and inclusive taste, in order to attain a sort of familiarity with the look of literature in all its branches. A turning over of the pages of a volume of Chambers' Encyclopedia of English Literature, the third, for preference, may be suggested as an admirable and a diverting exercise. You might mark the authors that flash and appeal to you. Chapter 3 why a classic is a classic. The large majority of our fellow citizens care as much about literature as they care about aeroplanes or the program of the legislature. They do not ignore it. They are not quite indifferent to it, but their interest in it is faint and perfunctory, or, if their interest happens to be violent, it is spasmodic. Ask the 200,000 persons whose enthusiasm made the vogue of a popular novel ten years ago what they think of that novel now, and you will gather that they have utterly forgotten it, and that they will no more dream of reading it again than of reading Bishop's select charters. Probably if they did read it again, they would not enjoy it. Not because the said novel is a whit worse now than it was ten years ago, Not because their taste has improved, but because they have not had sufficient practice to be able to rely on their taste as a means of permanent pleasure. They simply don't know from one day to the next what will please them. In the face of this, one may ask, why does the great and universal fame of classical authors continue? The answer is... "...that the fame of classical authority is entirely independent of the majority. Do you suppose that if the fame of Shakespeare depended on the man in the street, it would survive a fortnight?" The fame of classical authors is originally made and it is maintained by a passionate few. Even when a first-class author has enjoyed immense success during his lifetime, the majority have never appreciated him so sincerely as they have appreciated second-rate men. He has always been reinforced by the ardor of the passionate few, and in the case of an author who has emerged into glory after his death, the happy sequel has been due solely to the obstinate perseverance of the few. They could not leave him alone. They would not. They kept on savoring him and talking about him and buying him, and they generally behaved with such eager zeal And they were so authoritative and sure of themselves that at last the majority grew accustomed to the sound of his name and placidly agreed to the proposition that he was a genius. The majority really did not care very much either way. And it is by the passionate few that the renown of genius is kept alive from one generation to another. These few are always at work. They are always rediscovering genius. Their curiosity and enthusiasm are exhaustless, so that there is little chance of genius being ignored. And, moreover, they are always working either for or against the verdicts of the majority. The majority can make a reputation, but it is too careless to maintain it. If, by accident, the passionate few agree with the majority in a particular instance, they will frequently remind the majority that such-and-such a reputation has been made, and the majority will idly concur. Ah, yes, by the way, we must not forget that such-and-such a reputation exists. Without that persistent memory jogging, the reputation would quickly fall into the oblivion, which is death. The passionate few only have their way by reason of the fact that they are genuinely interested in literature, and literature matters to them. They conquer by their obstinacy alone, by their eternal repetition of the same statements. Do you suppose they could prove to the man in the street that Shakespeare was a great artist? The said man would not even understand the terms they employed. But when he is told 10,000 times and generation after generation that Shakespeare was a great artist, the said man believes not by reason but by faith. And he, too, repeats that Shakespeare was a great artist, and he buys the complete works of Shakespeare and puts them on his shelves, and he goes to see the marvelous stage effects which accompany King Lear or Hamlet, and comes back religiously convicted that Shakespeare was a great artist, all because the passionate few could not keep their admiration of Shakespeare to themselves. This is not cynicism, but truth, and it is important that those who wish to form their literary taste should grasp it. What causes the passionate few to make such a fuss about literature? There can be only one reply. They find a keen and lasting pleasure in literature. They enjoy literature as some men enjoy beer. The recurrence of this pleasure naturally keeps their interest in literature very much alive. They are forever making new researches, forever practicing on themselves. They learn to understand themselves. They learn to know what they want. Their taste becomes surer and surer as their experience lengthens. They do not enjoy today, what will seem tedious to them tomorrow. When they find a book tedious, no amount of popular clatter will persuade them that it is pleasurable. And when they find it pleasurable, no chill silence of the street crowds will affect their conviction that the book is good and permanent. They have faith in themselves. What are the qualities in this book which give keen and lasting pleasure to the passionate few? It is a question so difficult that it has never yet been completely answered. You may talk lightly about truth, insight, knowledge, wisdom, humor, and beauty, but these comfortable words do not really carry you very far, for each of them has to be defined especially the first and last it is all very well for keats in his airy manner to assert that beauty is truth truth beauty and that is all he needs to know i for one need to know a lot more and never shall know nobody not even Hazlitt nor saint bivu have ever finally explained Why he thought a book beautiful. I take the first lines that come to hand. The woods of Arcady are dead, and over is their antique joy. And I say those lines are beautiful because they give me pleasure. But why? I only know that the passionate few will, broadly, agree with me in deriving this mysterious pleasure from those lines. I am only convinced that the liveliness of our pleasure in those and many other lines by the same author will ultimately cause the majority to believe, by faith, that W.B. Yeats is a genius. The one reassuring aspect of the literary affair is that the passionate few are passionate about the same things. A continuance of interest does, in actual practice, lead ultimately to the same judgments. There is only the difference in width of interest. Some of the passionate few lack universality, or, rather, the whole of their interest is confined to one narrow channel. They have none left over. These men help specially to vitalize the reputations of the narrower geniuses, such as Crashaw. But their active predilections never contradict the general verdict of the passionate few. Rather, they enforce it. A classic is a work which gives pleasure to the minority, which is intensely and permanently interested in literature. It lives on because the minority... Eager to renew the sensation of pleasure is eternally curious and is therefore engaged in an eternal process of rediscovery. A classic does not survive for an ethical reason. It does not survive because it conforms to certain canons or because neglect would not kill it. It survives because it is a source of pleasure and because the passionate few can no more neglect it than a bee can neglect a flower. The passionate few do not read the right things because they are right. That is to put the cart before the horse. The right things are the right things solely because the passionate few like reading them. Hence, And I now arrive at my point. The one primary essential to literary taste is a hot interest in literature. If you have that, all the rest will come. It matters nothing that at present you fail to find the pleasure in certain classics. The driving impulse of your interest will force you to acquire experience, and experience will teach you the use of the means of pleasure. You do not know the secret ways of yourself. That is all. A continuance of interest must inevitably bring you to the keenest joys. But, of course, experience may be acquired judiciously or injudiciously, just as Putney may be reached via Wellham Green or via St. Petersburg. Chapter 4. Where to begin? I wish, particularly, that my readers should not be intimidated by the apparent vastness and complexity of this enterprise of forming the literary taste. It is not so vast nor so complex as it looks. There is no need— whatever for the experienced enthusiast to confuse and frighten himself with thoughts of literature in all its branches. Experts and pedagogues, chiefly pedagogues, have, for the purpose of convenience, split literature up into divisions and subdivisions, such as prose and poetry, or imaginative, philosophical, historical, or heroic, or elegiac, heroic, lyric, or religious, and profane, etc., ad infinitum. But the greater truth is that literature is all one and indivisible. The idea of the unity of literature should be well planted and fostered in the head. All literature is the expression of feeling of passion of emotion caused by a sensation of the interestingness of life. What drives a historian to write history? Nothing but the overwhelming impression made upon him by the survey of past times. He is forced into an attempt to reconstitute the picture for others. If hitherto you have failed to perceive that a historian is a being in strong emotion, trying to convey his emotion to others, read the passage in The Memoirs of Gibbons in which he describes how he finished the decline and fall you will probably never again look upon The Decline and Fall as a dry work. What applies to history applies to the other dry branches. Even Johnson's dictionary is packed with emotion. Read the last paragraph of the preface in it. In this work, when it shall be found that much is omitted, let it not be forgotten that much likewise is performed. It may... Repress the triumph of malignant criticism to observe That if our language is not here fully displayed I have only failed in an attempt Which no human powers have hitherto completed And so on to the close I have protracted my work till most of those whom i wish to please have sunk into the grave and success and miscarriage are empty sounds i therefore dismiss it with frigid tranquility having little to fear or hope from censure or from praise yes tranquility but not frigid The whole passage, one of the finest in English prose, is marked by the heat of emotion. You may discover the same quality in such books as Spencer's first principles. You may discover it everywhere in literature, from the cold fire of Pope's irony to the blasting temperatures of Swinburne. Literature does not begin till emotion has begun. There is even no essential definable difference between those two great branches prose and poetry for prose may have rhythm all that can be said is that verse will scan while prose will not the difference is purely formal very few poets have succeeded in being so poetical as isaiah sir thomas brown and ruskin have been in prose It can only be stated that as a rule writers have shown an instinctive tendency to choose verse for the expression of the very highest emotion the supreme literature is in verse but the finest achievements in prose approach so nearly to the finest achievements in verse that it is ill work deciding between them in the sense in which poetry is best understood all literature is poetry or is, at any rate, poetical in quality. Macaulay's ill-informed and unjust enunciations live because his genuine quality of emotion, restrained or loosed, will be more and more widely perceived at large in literature. It is the quality that must be looked for. It is the quality that unifies literature and all the arts. It is not merely useless, it is harmful for you to map out literature into divisions and branches with different laws, rules, and canons. The first thing is to obtain some possession of literature when you have actually felt some of the emotion which great writers have striven to impart to you. And when your emotions become so numerous and puzzling that you feel the need to arrange them and calling them by names, then, and not before, you can begin to study what has been attempted in the way of classifying and ticketing literature. Manuals and treaties are excellent things in their kind, but they are simply dead weight. You can only acquire really useful, general ideas by first acquiring particular ideas and putting those particular ideas together. You cannot make bricks without straw. Do not worry about literature in the abstract, about theories as to literature. Get at it. Get hold of literature in the concrete as a dog gets hold of a bone. If you ask me where you ought to begin, I shall gaze at you, as I might gaze at the faithful animal if he inquired which end of the bone he ought to attack. It doesn't matter in the slightest degree where you begin. Begin wherever the fancy takes you to begin. Literature is a whole. There is only one restriction for you. You must begin with an acknowledged classic. You must askew modern works the reason for this does not imply any depreciation of the present age at the present expense of past ages indeed it is important if you wish ultimately to have a wide catholic taste to guard against the too common assumption that nothing modern will stand comparison with the classics in every age there have been people who sigh ah yes 50 years ago We had a few great writers, but they are all dead, and no young ones are arising to take their place. This attitude of mind is deplorable, if not silly, and is a certain proof of narrow taste. It is a surety that in 1959 gloomy and egregious persons will be saying, "'Ah, yes,' At the beginning of the century, there were great poets like Swinburne, Meredith, Francis Thompson, and Yeats, great novelists like Hardy and Conrad, great historians like Stubbs and Maitland, etc., etc. But they are all dead now, and whom have we to take their place? It is not until an age has receded into history and all its mediocrity has dropped away from it that we can see it as it is, a group of men of genius— we forget the immense amount of twaddle that the great epochs produced. The total amount of fine literature created in a given period of time differs from epoch to epoch, but it does not differ much. And we may be perfectly sure that our own age will make a favorable impression upon the excellent judge, posterity. Therefore, beware of disparaging the present in your own mind while temporarily ignoring it. Dwell upon the idea that chaff contains about as much wheat as any similar quantity of chaff has contained wheat. The reason why you must avoid modern works at the beginning is simply that you are not in a position to choose among modern work. Nobody at all is quite in a position to choose with certainty among modern works. To sift the wheat from the chaff is a process that takes an exceedingly long time. Modern works have to pass before the bar of the taste of successive generations. Whereas with classics, which have been through the ordeal, almost the reverse is the case. Your taste has to pass before the bar of the classics. That is the point. If you differ with a classic, it is you who are wrong, not the book. If you differ with a modern work, you may be wrong or you may be right, but no judge is authoritative enough to decide. Your taste is uninformed. It needs guidance, and it needs authoritative guidance into the business of forming literary taste, faith, and enters, you probably will not specially care for a particular classic at first. If you did care for it at first, your taste, so far as that classic is concerned, would be formed, and our hypothesis is that your taste is not formed. How are you to arrive at the stage of caring for it? Chiefly, of course, by examining it and honestly trying to understand it. But this process is helped by an act of faith, by the frame of mind which says, I know on the highest authority that this thing is fine, that it is capable of giving me pleasure. Hence, I am determined to find pleasure in it. Believe me that faith counts enormously in the development of that wide taste, which is the instrument of wide pleasures. But it must be faith founded on unassailable authority chapter five how to read a classic let us begin experimental reading with charles lamb i choose lamb for various reasons he is a great writer wide in his appeal of a highly sympathetic temperament and his finest achievements are simple and very short Moreover, he may usefully lead to other and more complex matters, as will appear later. Now, your natural tendency will be to think of Charles Lamb as a book because he has arrived at the stage of being a classic. Charles Lamb was a man, not a book. It is extremely important that the beginner in a literary study should always form an idea of the man behind the book. The book is nothing but the expression of the man. The book is nothing but the man trying to talk to you, trying to impart to you some of his feelings. An experienced student will divine the man from the book, will understand the man by the book, as is, of course, logically proper. But the beginner will do well to aid himself in understanding the book by means of independent information about the man— He will thus at once relate the book to something human and strengthen in his mind the essential notion of the connection between literature and life. The earliest literature was delivered orally directly by the artist to the recipient. In some respects, this arrangement was ideal. Changes in the constitution of society have rendered it impossible. Nevertheless, We can still, by the exercise of imagination, hear mentally the accents of the artist speaking to us. We must so exercise our imagination as to feel the man behind the book. Some biographical information about Lamb should be acquired. There are excellent short biographies of him by Canon Agner in the Dictionary of National Biography in Chambers' Encyclopedia and in Chambers' Encyclopedia of English Lit. If you have none of these but you ought to have the last. There are Mr. E. V. Lucas's Exhaustive Life and then cheaper, Mr. Walton Gerald's Lamb, my Bell and Sons. Also introductory studies prefixed to various editions of Lamb's works. Indeed, the facilities for collecting materials for a picture of Charles Lamb as a human being are prodigious. When you have made for yourself such a picture, read the Essays of Elia in the light of it. I will choose one of the most celebrated, Dream Children, a Reverie. Dream Children, a Reverie. This edition of Dream Children I received from my brother's great uncle-in-law. We were going over the past to take my mother to the Seattle Cancer Care building and we stayed at their house. And I came down the steps, and there it was, looking at me from a bookshelf. I snagged it and asked him if I might borrow it, and he promptly gave it to me, as well as numerous other books, stating that he had never read it, saw no significance in it, and that it was probably going to go to goodwill if I didn't take it. Anyway, it's wonderfully bound. Anyway, it looks like a 1929 edition. Dream Children, A Reverie, by Charles Lamb. Children love to listen to stories about their elders when they were children, to stretch their imagination to the conception of a traditionary great-uncle or grand-dame whom they never met, whom they never saw. It was in this spirit that my little ones crept about me the other evening to hear about their great-grandmother, Field, who lived in a great house in Norfolk, a hundred times bigger than that in which they and papa lived, which had been the scene, so at least it was generally believed in that part of the county, of the tragic incidents which they had lately become familiar with from the ballad of the children of the wood. Certain it is that the whole story of the children and their cruel uncle was to be seen fairly carved out in wood upon the chimney-piece of the great hall, the whole story down to the robin redbreasts, till a foolish rich person pulled it down to set up a marble one of modern invention in its stead with no story upon it. Here, Alice put out one of her dear mother's looks, too tender to be called upbraiding. Then I went on to say how religious and how good their great-grandmother Field was, how beloved and respected by everybody though she was not indeed the mistress of this great house but had only the charge of it and yet in some respects she might be said to be the mistress of it too committed to her by the owner who preferred living in a newer and more fashionable mansion which he had purchased somewhere in the adjoining county but still she lived in it as if it had been her own AND KEPT UP THE DIGNITY OF THE GREAT HOUSE IN A SORT WHILE SHE LIVED, WHICH AFTERWARDS CAME TO DECAY AND WAS NEARLY PULLED DOWN, AND ALL its OLD ORNAMENTS STRIPPED AND CARRIED AWAY TO THE OWNER'S OTHER HOUSE, WHERE THEY WERE SET UP AND LOOKED AS AWKWARD AS IF SOMEONE WERE TO CARRY AWAY AN OLD TOMB THEY HAD SEEN LATELY AT THE ABBEY AND STICK THEM UP IN LADY C'S tawdry GILT DRAWING ROOM. HERE JOHN SMILED as much to say, that would be foolish indeed. And then I told how, when she came to die, her funeral was attended by a concourse of all the poor and some of the gentry, too, of the neighborhood for miles round to show their respect for her memory, because she had been such a good and religious woman, so good indeed that she knew all the psaltery by heart I and a great part of the testament besides. Here, little Alice spread her hands, and then I told what a tall, upright, graceful person their great-grandmother Field once was, and how in her youth she was esteemed the best dancer. Here, Alice's little right foot played an involuntary movement, till, upon my looking grave, it desisted the best answer, I was saying, in the country, till a cruel disease called a cancer came and bowed her down with pain. But it could never bend her good spirits or make them stoop. But they were still upright because she was so good and religious. Then I told how she was used to sleep by herself in a lone chamber of the great lone house and how she believed that an apparition of two infants was to be seen at midnight gliding up and down the great staircase near where she slept. But she said, those innocents would not do her no harm, and how frightened I used to be, though in those days I had my maid to sleep with me, because I was never half so good or religious as she, and yet I never saw the infant's. Here John expanded all his eyebrows and tried to look courageous. Then I told how good she was to all her grandchildren, having us to the great house in the holy days, where I in particular used to spend many hours by myself in gazing upon the old busts of the twelve Caesars that had been the emperors of Rome, till the old marble heads would seem to live again, or I had to be turned into marble with them. How I never could be tired with roaming about that huge mansion, with its vast empty rooms, with their worn-out hangings, fluttering tapestry, and carved oaken panels, with the gliding almost rubbed out, sometimes in the spacious, old-fashioned gardens, which I had almost to myself, unless, when, now and then, a solitary gardening man would cross me and how the nectarines and peaches hung upon the walls without my ever offering to pluck them, because they were forbidden fruit, unless now and then, and because I had more pleasure in strolling about among the old, melancholy-looking yew-trees or the firs, and picking up the red berries and the fir-apples, which were good for nothing but to look at, or in lying about upon the fresh grass, with all the fine garden smells around me, or basking in the orangery till I could almost fancy myself ripening too, along with the oranges and the limes in that grateful warmth, or in watching the dace that darted to and fro in the fish pond at the bottom of the garden, with here and there a great sulky pike hanging midway down the water in silent estate, as if it mocked at their impertinent friskings. I had more pleasure in these busy idle diversions than in all the sweet flavors of peaches, nectarines, oranges, and such-like common baits of children. Here John slyly deposited back upon the plate a bunch of grapes, which, not unobserved by Alice, he had meditated dividing with her, and both seemed willing to relinquish them for the present as irrelevant. Then, in somewhat of a more heightened tone, I told how, though their great-grandmother field loved all her grandchildren, yet, in an especial manner, she might be said to love their uncle John, because he was so handsome and spirited a youth and a king to the rest of us, and instead of moping about in solitary corners like some of us, he would mount the most meddlesome horse he could get and but an imp no bigger than themselves, and make it carry him half over the country in a morning, and join the hunters when they were out. And yet he loved the old great house and gardens too, but had too much spirit to be always pent up with these boundaries. And how their uncle grew up to a man's estate as brave as he was handsome, to the admiration of everybody, but to their great-grandmother field most especially, and how he used to carry me upon his back when I was a lame-footed boy, for he was a good bit older than me, many a mile when I could not walk for pain, and how in after life he became lame-footed too, and I did not always, I fear, make allowances enough for him when he was impatient and in pain, nor remember sufficiently how considerate he had been to me when I was lame-footed, And how he died though he had not been dead an hour it seemed as if he had died a great while ago such a great distance there is betwixt life and death and how i bore his death as i thought pretty well at first but afterward it haunted and haunted me and though i did not cry or take it to heart as some do and as i think he would have done if i had died yet i missed him all day long and knew not till then how much I had loved him. I missed his kindness, and I missed his crossness, and I wished him to be alive again, to be quarreling with him, for we quarreled sometimes, rather than not have him again. And was as uneasy without him as he, their poor uncle, must have been when the doctor took off his limb. Here the children fell a-crying, and asked if their little mourning, which they had on, was not for Uncle John and they looked up and prayed me not to go on about their uncle, but to tell them some stories about their pretty dead mother. Then I told them how for seven long years, in hope sometimes, sometimes in despair, yet persisting ever, I courted the fair Alice. And as much as children could understand, I explained to them what coyness and difficulty and denial meant in maidens. When suddenly turning to Alice, the soul of the first Alice looked out at her eyes with such a reality of re-presentiment that I became in doubt which of them stood there before me or whose that bright hair was. And while I stood gazing, both the children gradually grew fainter to my view, receding and still receding till nothing at last but two mournful features were seen in the uttermost distance, which, without speech, strangely impressed upon me the effects of speech. We are not Alice, nor of thee, nor are we children at all, the children of Alice, called Bartram, father. We are nothing, less than nothing, and dreams. We are only what might have been, and must wait upon the tedious shores of Leith, millions of ages before we have existence and a name. And immediately awaking, I found myself quietly seated in my bachelor armchair, where I had fallen asleep with the faithful Bridget, unchanged by my side. But James Ellia, or John, was gone forever. Charles Lamb was born in London, the son of Elizabeth Field and John Lamb. Lamb was the youngest child, with a sister eleven years older named Mary, and an even older brother named John. There were four others who did not survive infancy. His father John Lamb was a lawyer's clerk and spent most of his professional life as the assistant to a barrister named Sam Salt lived in the inner temple in the legal district of London. It was there, in Crown Office Row, that Charles Lamb was born and spent his youth. Lamb created a portrait of his father in his Elia on the Old Ventures under the name Lovell. Lamb's older brother was too much a senior to be a youthful companion to the boy, but his sister Mary, being born eleven years before him, was probably his closest playmate. Lamb was also cared for by his paternal aunt Hetty who seems to have had a particular fondness for him. A number of writings of both Charles and Mary suggested that the conflict between Aunt Hetty and her sister-in-law created a certain, degree, a certain degree of tension in the Lamb household. However, Charles speaks fondly of her, and her presence in the house seems to have brought a great deal of comfort to him. Some of Lamb's fondest childhood memories were of the time spent with Mrs. Field, his maternal grandmother who was for many years a servant to the Plummer family, who owned a large country house called Blakeswar near Widford, Hertfordshire. Hedford, After the death of Mrs. Plummer, Lamb's grandmother was in sole charge of the large home, and as Mr. Plummer was often absent, Charles had free reign of the place during his visits. Little is known about Charles's life before he was seven, other than that Mary taught him to read at a very early age, and he read voraciously. It is believed that he suffered from smallpox during his early years, which forced him into a long period of convalescence. After his period of recovery, Lamb began to take lessons from Mrs. Reynolds, a woman who lived in the temple, and is believed to have been the former wife of a lawyer. Mrs. Reynolds must have been a sympathetic schoolmistress because Lamb maintained a relationship with her throughout his life, and she is known to have attended dinner parties held by both Mary and Charles. Both Charles and his sister Mary suffered a period of mental illness, as he himself confesses in a letter. Charles spent six weeks in a mental facility during 1795. However, Mary Lamb's illness was particularly strong, and it led her to become aggressive on a fatal occasion. On the 22nd of September, 1796, while preparing dinner, Mary became angry with her apprentice, roughly shoving the little girl out of her way and pushing her into another room. Her mother, Elizabeth, began yelling at her for this, and Mary suffered a mental breakdown as her mother continued to yell at her. A terrible event occurred. She took the kitchen knife she had been holding, unsheathed it, and approached her mother, who was sitting down. Mary, worn down to a state of extreme nervous misery by attention to needlework by day and to her mother at night was seized with acute mania and stabbed her mother in the heart with a table knife charles ran into the house soon after the murder and took the knife out of mary's hand Later in the evening, Charles found a local place for Mary in a private mental facility called Fisher House, which had been found with the help of a doctor friend of his. While reports were published by the media, Charles wrote a letter to Samuel Taylor Coleridge in connection to the metricide. White, or some of my friends with public papers by this time, may have informed you of the terrible calamities that have fallen on our family. I will only give you the outlines. My poor dearest sister in a fit of insanity has been the death of her own mother i was at hand only time enough to snatch the knife out of her grasp she is at present in a madhouse, from whence i fear she must be moved to a hospital god has preserved to me my senses i eat and drink and sleep and have my judgment i believe very sound my poor father was slightly wounded and i am left to care of him and my aunt mr norris of the blue coat school has been very kind to us, and we have no other friend, but thank God I am very calm and composed and able to do the best that remains to do. Charles took over responsibility for Mary after refusing his brother John's suggestion that they have her committed to a public lunatic asylum. Lamb used a large portion of his relatively meager income to keep his beloved sister in a private madhouse in Islington. With the help of friends, Lamb succeeded in obtaining his sister's release from what would otherwise have been lifelong imprisonment. Although there was no legal status of insanity at the time, the jury returned the verdict of lunacy, which is how she was freed from guilt of willful murder, on the condition that Charles take personal responsibility for her safekeeping. In 1799, the death of his father, John Lamb, was something of a relief to Charles, because his father had been mentally incapacitated for a number of years since suffering a stroke the death of his father the death of his father also meant that mary could come to live again with him in pentonville and in 1800 they set up a shared home at meter court buildings in the temple where they would live until 1809 in 1800 mary's illness came back and charles had to take her back again to the asylum In those days charles sent a letter to Coleridge in which he admitted he felt melancholic and lonely adding i almost wish that mary were dead later she would come back and both he and his sister would enjoy an active and rich social life their london quarters became a kind of weekend salon for many of the most outstanding theatrical and literary figures of the day in 1869 a club the lambs was formed in london to carry on their salon tradition The actor Henry James Montague founded the club's New York counterpart in 1874. Charles Lamb, having been to school with Samuel Coleridge, counted Coleridge as perhaps his closest and certainly his oldest friend. On his deathbed, Coleridge had a mourning ring sent to Lamb and his sister. In London, Lamb became familiar with a group of young writers who favored political reform, including Shelley, Hazlitt, and Hunt. Lamb continued to clerk... the east india company and doubled as a writer in various genres his tragedy john woodville being published in 1802 his farce mr h was performed at drury lane in 1807 where it was roundly booed in the same year tales from shakespeare charles handled the tragedies his sister mary the comedies was published and became a bestseller on the 20th of July, 1819, at age 44, Lamb, who because of family commitments had never married, fell in love with an actress, Fanny Kelly of Covent Garden. And besides writing her a sonnet, he also proposed marriage. She refused him, and he died a bachelor. You are considering Dream Children as a human document. Lamb was nearing 50 when he wrote it. You can see, especially from the last line, that the death of his elder brother, John Lamb, was fresh and heavy on his mind. You will recollect that in youth he had a disappointing love affair with a girl named Anne Simmons, who afterwards married a man named Bartram. You will know that one of the influences of his childhood was his grandmother Field, housekeeper at Blake's House in Herefordshire, at which mansion he sometimes spent his holidays. You will know that he was a bachelor living with his sister Mary, who was subject to homicidal mania. And you will see in this essay, primarily, a supreme expression of the increasing loneliness of his life. He constructed all that preliminary tableau of paternal pleasure in order to bring home to you in the most poignant way his feeling of the solitude of his existence, his sense of all that had been missed and lost in the world. The key of the essay is one of profound sadness, but note that he makes his sadness beautiful. Or rather, he shows the beauty that resides in sadness. You watch him sitting there in his bachelor armchair, and you say to yourself, Yes, it was sad, but it was somehow beautiful. When you have said that to yourself, Charles Lamb, so far as you are concerned, has accomplished his chief aim in writing the essay. How exactly he produces his effect can never be fully explained, but one reason of his success is certainly his regard for truth. He does not falsely idealize his brother, nor the relations between them. He does not say, as sentimentalists would have said, not the slightest cloud ever darkened our relations, nor does he exaggerate his solitude. Being a sane man, he has too much common sense to assemble all his woes at once. He might have told you that Bridget was a homicidal maniac. What he does tell you is that she was faithful another reason of his success is his continual regard for beautiful things and fine actions as illustrated in the major characteristics of his grandmother and his brother and in the detailed description of blake's warehouse and the gardens thereof then subordinate to the main purpose part of the machinery of the main purpose is the picture of the children real children till the moment when they fade away the traits of childhood are accurately and humorously put in again and again here john smiled as much to say that was foolish indeed here little alice spread her hands here alice's little right foot played an involuntary movement till upon my looking grave it desisted here john expanded all his eyebrows and tried to look courageous Here John slyly deposited back upon the plate a bunch of grapes. Here the children fell a-crying and prayed me to tell them some stories about their pretty dead mother. And the exquisite, here Alice put out one of her dear mother's looks, too tender to be upbraiding. Incidentally, while preparing this ultimate solemn effect, Lamb has inspired you with a new intensified vision of the wistful beauty of children. Their imitativeness, their facile and generous emotions, their anxiety to be correct, their ingenious haste to escape from grief into joy. You can see these children almost as clearly and as tenderly as Lamb saw them. For days afterward, you will not be able to look upon a child without recalling Lamb's portrayal of the grace of childhood. He will have shared with you his perception of beauty. If you possess children, he will have renewed for you the charm which custom does very decidedly stale. It is further to be noticed that the measure of his success in picturing the children is the measure of his success in his main effect. The more real they seem, the more touching is the revelation of the fact they do not exist and never have existed. And if you were moved by the reference to their pretty dead mother, You will be still more moved when you learn that the girl who would have been their mother is not dead and is not lambs as having read the essay you reflect upon it you will see how its emotional power over you has sprung from the sincere and unexaggerated expression of actual emotions exactly remembered by someone Who had an eye always open for beauty, who was indeed obsessed by beauty, the beauty of old houses and gardens and aged virtuous characters, the beauty of children, the beauty of companionships, the softening beauty of dreams in an armchair, all these are brought together and mingled with the grief and regret which were the origin of the mood. Why is Dream Children a classic? It is a classic because it transmits to you, as to generations before you, distinguished emotion. Because it makes you respond to the throb of life more intensely, more justly, and more nobly. And it is capable of doing this because Charles Lamb had a very distinguished, a very sensitive, and a very honest mind. His emotions were noble. He felt so keenly that he was obliged to find relief in imparting his emotions. And his mental processes were so sincere that he could neither exaggerate nor diminish the truth. If he had lacked any one of these three qualities, his appeal would have been narrowed and weakened. And he would not have become a classic. Either his feelings would have been deficient in supreme beauty and, therefore, less worthy to be imparted, or he would not have had sufficient force to impart them, or his honesty would not have been equal to the strain of imparting them accurately. In any case, he would not have set up in you the vibration which we call pleasure and which in super caused by vitalizing participation in high emotion. As Lamb sat in his bachelor armchair with his brother in the grave and his faithful homicidal maniac by his side, he really did think to himself, this is beautiful. Sorrow is beautiful. Disappointment is beautiful. Life is beautiful. I must tell them. I must make them understand. Because he still makes you understand. He is a classic. And now I seem to hear you say, But what about Lamb's famous literary style? Where does that come in? Chapter 6. The Question of Style. So that is, that's to my point, that the syndicate is Neverland and the rest of the world isn't. Comest thou at me, bro. <laughs> Dark and sinister, man. <laughs>